and welcome to the David Ronald Show podcast. Hey, Ron, how are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Not too bad. Apple had their first event, their first special event of 2021. Today, we're going to kind of highlight some of the things that they talked about. So one of the first things they talked about was Apple Card for Family. What are your thoughts in terms of what they were talking about? Because there's the positive side, which is you now have, if let's say you have two people within a family who apply for the Apple Card and they each get different amounts of credit. It makes sense now to be able to consolidate that so that you can get the higher of the credit amounts. But then when they get into, okay, people ages 13 to 17 in that range can now kind of be participants on that family card. I don't know of too many families where like a 13-year-old will have access to a credit card. Well, I guess changing times, right? I mean... Things are much different these days. I think overall, people are doing a lot more things as they're younger, right? Think about social media accounts and things like that, where I think overall kids are having those much younger now. But does that really show responsibility by giving them a credit card at that age? I don't know. Maybe it's more that a lot of places are taking credit card versus cash. I don't know if that plays a role at all, or you don't want to give the kids too much cash and you'd rather be able to control the flow through the credit card. Perhaps that's the concept behind all of this. Right. I mean, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me where someone who's in the age range of 13 to 17, I understand that 18 and older, you're in college, you have to buy books, you have to buy, you know, day-to-day things that you might need while you're in college. I get that because You remember your college years. I remember my college years where back then the credit card companies would set up tables outside the schools and get people to apply. And you weren't getting like $20,000 in credit. You were getting maybe $1,000 or $1,500 in credit, maybe even less. Right. Just so that you can use that to buy your books or buy supplies or buy meals, things like that. But again, when you look at the range of 13 to 17, again, I don't know how many people, how many kids in that age group or young adults in that age group and you're technically not adults. well i mean you're talking Teens. about high schoolers here right and again yeah. things have changed they're probably carrying iphones and androids with them whereas when we were at that age well we didn't really have the that type of technology available to us at that time so changing times so if they can be carrying a thousand dollar phone why wouldn't they have a credit card why wouldn't they be able to buy things that they need to Maybe they are necessities. Their parents are working, so they may need to buy certain things, but not always waiting for their parents to help them buy it. It's possible, although technically they're not really extending credit and individual responsibility there. They're making you a participant, so you have a card and access to the funds, whatever you set up, and you're not really individually responsible. Versus when you're 18 or older, then you could set it up so that you're individually responsible for your card and your credit and build credit that way. I think it's open-ended. I think it really depends on perspective and whether or not it seems reasonable. I think it's just kind of still a little bit odd because I don't see too many people in that age group where they will even normally would have a need for a credit card at that stage. Well, I think, again, just not replacing money. But I guess the fact of maybe kids losing money, having loose change in your pocket versus having that credit card. And if you think about it, that can be accessible through the iPhone. 
right? So kids who have the iPhone, if they need to buy something, let's just say you go to a Dwayne Reed or something to get a soda or water, you can just quickly pay that off the phone versus exchanging cash. And I guess with COVID these days, also exchanging cash just adds on to potentially passing on the virus at that point versus simply tapping your phone and paying for something really quickly. Yeah, that might be the mindset to it because I guess there are a lot of people who have switched over from using cash, which they might have been more likely to use before the pandemic to now charging everything because you just don't have that level of physical contact. Exactly. AirTags. So they had a very interesting video and you knew where it was leading. I think just your immediate response is that when you see the price tag to it, $30 piece of equipment to track whatever you're, you're trying to track and tag is a little bit hefty. But also from the position of Apple, you know, it's kind of a more elegant style device. It has a better way of tracking and managing the AirTag. And also it fortunately does have a replaceable battery. I think it's a 2032 battery. Right. So you can replace it. Yeah, absolutely. But we have to remember this technology isn't new. There's a company out there called Tile and they do the exact same thing prior to all of this. So this would really be a competitor to it, right? Outside of it, hey, it's an Apple product. But what is great is that it does have a replaceable battery because for Tile, they have these that only last one year and then you'll have to buy a brand new one. And it's not small either. I feel the Tiles are relatively big for this company, Tile. And I have one of those myself. I had purchased one of their wallets at one point and it came with a Tile. Is it worth it? I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I also have this key holder comes from tile as well and you can track it and things like that so i think the overall concept is pretty cool but it's not something new it's something that exists already and this just brings it into the whole concept for apple right so if you're just like an apple fan sure you'll say oh yeah let me let me get this it's great i do like the sizing of it and the fact that it's a replaceable battery is it something i'll potentially get Maybe, just for testing. I mean, what was it? You get three of them for $100 or so? I think it's four. four? I think you buy the four-pack, and it's equivalent to about $100, $99. Something yeah, I mean, I'd be inclined to do some testing with it, put it on a book bag. You know, different places that you would have it where you could potentially leave something behind. It is nice that you could really have something to track your items if you're one to tend to leave things behind or lose them, or or whatever. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of criticism in terms of the accessories that go with the AirTags, that some of those can end up being really pricey so that they're even more expensive than the AirTag itself. Right. So the AirTag by itself is $29. You can get a four-pack for $99. And then they have like all these leather loops and rings that you can put things in, and... Some of those are like $29. There's the AirTag loop that's $29. So your AirTag's already $29, and then you're buying a loop for the AirTag, right. which is another $29. But we have to remember, this is, this is not a new concept. Think about the Apple Watch. Yeah, you can buy the Apple Watch, right. but now if you want a nicer band, you have to pay extra money for the nicer band, right? Yeah. So accessories are expensive, but this isn't a new concept for Apple. 
Right. I think what I would argue in terms of the Apple Watch, in terms of the bands, for example, is a typical watch band that's not replaceable per se, not easily replaceable, those break over time. I've had Casio watches over the years where the band will just split. And then if you want a new band, you have to get that pin out. And usually once you get that pin out once, that pin will never stay there permanently. So what I would say with Apple Watch at least is you can replace and you can customize the band so that it's to your fit. But it's also something where you can't really use your watch without a watch band. You're not going to carry it in your pocket. I mean, with AirTags, they've kind of developed it to the point where you have to put the AirTag in something because it doesn't attach on directly. So the AirTag is kind of like a coin, and that has to go inside some sort of ring. And well, inside that ring, then that's how you attach not it. Not necessarily, onto, right? If you have a book bag, you could just put that you can drop into, it in. into yeah. one of the pockets in your book bag. But right. sure, do you want to hang, hang it and dangle it on a bag? You can, but are you making yourself a target for someone who might want to rob you? I don't know. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. they're not crazy expensive, but do you really want to promote that and just have that dangling? I don't know. Right. I, I think the question with air tags is would you just want to like throw it in a bag? You think about like people who have gym bags and you're like, let me just throw it in the bag and then now I need that air tag to put into another bag and now you've got to dig through like a gym bag or a luggage bag in order but to find if you're using those where the bags tag is. often, wouldn't you be buying more more tags versus taking the same tag and just moving it over? Well, I, I think I would be looking at the more conservative individual who I don't want to necessarily buy a four pack and spend $100 on air tags. I'll buy one air tag for $29 and just use it in all my my bags because I'm cheap. I don't want to spend the money on on getting four air tags and put it, you know, one in each bag. Well, then if you can be cheap, you should be responsible then. Yeah. That's just lazy. If you're going to be like, oh, well, I'm going to do this or do that. That's just lazy then. You can't be picky like that. Well, some people are like that. It's like, I don't want to have to spend the extra money on this and that and, and whatever. You so can't be cheap I, and lazy. I'll do the well, I guess you can, but still. If you, you can. can be cheap, you can be cheap you, and lazy. You can be lazy. All right. Well, you know, the, then you're asking for it yourself. Yeah. All right. So let's move on. A12 Bionic Apple TV. So they have a new Apple TV, new Siri remote. And I think what they're trying to do with Apple TV is make it better because people are consuming a lot of content and they want to make the content pop out and visually better represent the way it was intended for the audience. I think the biggest takeaway was the fact that you can kind of calibrate whatever your display device is using your iPhone and the technology between the Apple TV and your iPhone to really make the quality better. And this, again, is also not new because creatives have been calibrating monitors for years using technology in order to make sure that whatever they create on the computer is more representative on both what they want on screen and in print. So this definitely isn't something new. But it's definitely something that you don't see often for your everyday TV or your smart TV so that you can calibrate it so that it's not that the TV is changing. It's really how the Apple TV will convert the signal that it's sending to your TV to better represent what the content is that you're viewing. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, it's not new. I remember years back at work where we bought this uh, device that would do the exact same thing. I think it was about 100 or $200. And what you yeah. would do is you mount it onto a TV or a projector screen, right. and then it, it runs through a calibration, and mm -hmm. it, it makes sure that, and this was mainly for presentations at that time, where you want to make sure in your presentation all the specific colors you're using 
are exactly what you want to see right. on the screen. So the way you built it on your machine, on your computer, you want to make sure those colors are specifically exactly how it looks like on that screen, on your TV, on the projector screen and whatever. Right. Pretty cool technology, but it did take quite some time to calibrate it. And you had to make sure the lighting where you were doing it was exactly how it's going to be when you present, things like that. So it did stand out to me when I saw them talk about color balance. I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool. You can do that off an iPhone. So again, yeah, not new technology, but it's nice how they've developed it into an iPhone being able to do that for you. Right, and you're using technology that people will already have because you have an Apple TV, you're probably going to have an iPhone, and so now you have the components. You, have to, you don't have to go out and buy another piece of hardware to do the calibrations. You have the tools that you need to do the calibrations. All you have to do is put it together, and I think that's a very positive thing. And then the other thing they had was the new Siri remote and ultimately just adding more functionality to it so that you know, if you've ever used a previous Siri remote, it doesn't do a lot. And often, I never liked the Siri remote that came with the Apple TV. I would prefer just using my phone because you get better functionality. So now with the new Siri remote, you'll get some added functionality that will hopefully streamline your ability to kind of navigate your Apple TV device a lot more easily. Yeah, I agree. I have the older remote, and I'd have to say the touch on the remote just doesn't have good enough control on it. So you're constantly trying to get it accurate. And then I just go back to my phone anyway, because that's a lot more accurate. But with this new remote, it does look like it's more refined. That is very interesting. And that did stand out. But I did just get a Apple TV last year. So unfortunately, I will not be buying this one just for the remote. Though I did read something about with this new remote, it won't really be able to support gaming. If you're using it, you still have to use the older remote just because it right. doesn't have the taptic uh, feedback or something on this new device. I read something quickly about that. Someone had commented. Yeah, I, I don't remember that part, but it's very possible. Definitely, it looks nicer. It also has a little bit of a thickness to it versus the existing ones that were flat. I don't know how the newer ones, like the one on your Apple TV, if it's still kind of that flat remote. It's, but this it's looks relatively like it has a flat, bit. but not as flat. Yeah, this one model. looks like if you turn it at an angle, that there's a little bit of thickness to it. Right. So you have that feel to it. You have the weight in your hand, and then they add the Siri button now to the side versus having it in the front, which is kind of nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like that ring design that they have where they say you can do fast-forward rewind uh, using the circular gestures. So that, right. that is actually pretty cool. Again, yeah, because it's that's more what refined you remote use. than what the previous one was, where it's just free ring, it's a touch, great. But the problem is that it just doesn't have that accuracy there. Right, exactly. It would be up, down, left, right, and you weren't able to do as much as you wanted to. And you would have to go to your phone, to the remote app there, and use it. I mean, I think the one downside still with a lot of these devices, these streaming devices and the remotes, is when you have to like set up the Wi-Fi password or log into your accounts for Netflix or Hulu or things like that. The problem is you can't type your password easily on these remotes. You have to use your phone app to do it. With the caveat that you can't set up Wi-Fi without having to use the Siri remote the first time because you can't get your phone on until you get the Wi-Fi working. Right, exactly. So Yeah, so that part is a bit annoying. All right, so let's move on to the next product that they talked about, which was the new M1 iMacs. 
Now, M1 was introduced at the end of last year on the MacBook Air and the lower end tier 13 inch MacBook Pro. And now they're bringing it to a brand new 24 inch iMac with a 4.5K Retina display. Not only are they doing that, but these new iMacs are thinner and more elegant than the previous generation. And they brought the colors back. They're available in up to seven different colors. So it's reminiscent of back in the day when they had those original... The translucent-ish. Yeah, translucent iMacs with the different colors and then matching hardware, matching keyboard, matching mouse. And it's the same thing here. They have the matching keyboard, matching mice that go with it. I think there are three versions of the keyboards that you can get. They're also bringing, even though they're not calling it MagSafe, bring back a type of magnetic connector for the power cord. The power cord still connects in the rear of the iMac, but it connects magnetically, which is something that people have asked Apple to bring back for the longest time after MagSafe went away in favor of USB-C. So bringing the MagSafe or the magnetic connector is a positive. Now, I do have some criticisms about the new iMac. First thing is probably ports or the lack thereof, because I think a lot of people are going to say there aren't enough ports, especially legacy ports, because you have two USB 4 ports, which are also Thunderbolt, and that's on the... And and here's the other criticism that I'm going to make about it, is the whole... You have the M1 chip in the iMacs, but they're doing what they did with the MacBook Air, which is you have a M1 with the 7-core GPU and one with the 8-core GPU. And it's one of those things where you think about, well, what was the thinking behind having a 7-core GPU versus an 8-core GPU? And the only thing you really see is pricing. That's really the big difference. When you look at the MacBook Air, for example, 7-core GPU versus 8-core, it's pricing. It's a couple hundred dollars difference. And it's the same thing here. Was it really necessary to do a 7-core GPU versus an 8-core GPU? Couldn't you just do 8-core CPU, 8-core GPU, kept it consistent with one M1 across the board versus having, well, let's have an M1 chip that's 8-core CPU, 7-core GPU, lower end. And then an 8-core CPU, 8-core GPU, slightly higher end, but not really much higher. And we'll throw in a little price difference there. That's one of the things that doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm sure there's logic over at Apple as to why they did it that way. And then going from there, the whole thing where you're going to have, okay, on that 7-core GPU, you're going to have the two USB 4 slash Thunderbolt ports. But then on the 8-core GPU, you're going to get those same two USB 4 Thunderbolt ports, but also we're going to add two USB 3 ports. But that's all the ports you're going to get. If you want gigabit Ethernet, they're adding that into the power block or the power brick, and that will be configurable on the 7-core GPU unit, but it'll be standard on the 8-core GPU unit. And you still get a headphone jack, a 3.5-millimeter headphone jack on the side. So I think the criticism that they will be getting, if they're not already, is the lack of ports, that you're really not getting a lot, a lot of ports for an iMac that has the power to do a lot more, even though technically it's the same M1 chips that you're going to find in the MacBook Air and the 13-inch MacBook Pro. But you have this nice, elegant piece of equipment that people are going to spend money on, and they're going to need dongles and adapters. And I know that when they said, like, the Ethernet port, we're putting it in the bricks so that you're not going to have all these 
cables and you have a cleaner look. And yeah, it is cleaner, but up to the point when people have to add dongles because I need to use USB-A devices. Everything I have isn't USB-C. Well, how am I going to use that? Well, the USB-Cs have to be converted to USB-A with an adapter. Or I'm going to need some sort of port replicator or something that I connect to my iMac that is going to give me those additional legacy ports. I think you're going to get some level of criticism when it comes to that. Yeah, I mean, you'll always get that. But also, I guess if you think about it from a strategy perspective, they probably try to push everyone to start getting newer equipment as well, right? I mean, like you said, you have older equipment, you have to convert it. Well, probably in their minds, like, well, how do we get people to buy newer equipment? Right. Everything has to change over time. And I get the philosophy that it is a business too. And so the idea is we want to modernize the technology. We want to use technology that more and more people are switching to because there are benefits to having USB-C and Thunderbolt, especially Thunderbolt because there are going to be a lot more devices that you're able to tap into because now you have the capability of charging. Plus you also have the ability of connecting all these other devices. So that's going to be a major benefit. But when you look at the aspect of we're making this a cleaner design, yes, it's a cleaner design if you're using all the newest technology. But there are many of us who are still using legacy devices, and so you're not going to be necessarily investing all the money to make that change that quickly. Now, if you're using it, something like this for business, for example, where you're connecting to servers or cloud storage or things like that, yes, it makes sense. If you're using the latest and greatest of everything, you're moving to cloud storage, you maybe need the occasional physical connection to an external drive or some external device, maybe attach your camera or something. I get that. Then it's going to still be a fairly clean design. But there are a lot of people where, okay, they're going to make the investment into a new iMac, into the M1 technology, but they're going to have a lot of legacy equipment. And that means buying more adapters, having more dongles, having more connectors, all of that in order to make things work within this new ecosystem. And again, I understand that you have to change over time because, look, if you have a new MacBook Pro or MacBook Air that only has two USB-C ports, one of those USB-C ports you're using for charging, the other one you're using for everything else. So I get that. And you just have to adapt with the changing times. But I think the idea is you're kind of jumping from A to F very quickly. And you're kind of leaving out everything in between, which might be a little bit harder. I also think that like the Ethernet port, there are still a lot of times when you might need an Ethernet port, especially if you're like configuring a router for the first time, for example, and you don't have your Wi-Fi set up yet, you need to have an Ethernet connection. I know that some you can set up through apps and, and whatnot, but the reality is that sometimes you do need that Ethernet connection. And I think that they should have just made it standard. Again, this is more of what they should have did standard. I think in terms of the three things that should have been standardized was, you know what, just make it eight core GPU across the board. In terms of the USB 4 slash Thunderbolt ports, just give them four across the board instead of doing, okay, if you got the seven core GPU, you get two. If you get the eight core, you get four ports. And then make the ethernet standard across the board because that way, you just have it. I mean, I'm sure they're going to sell a separate power brick. If you didn't configure your iMac, your 7-core GPU iMac with Ethernet, you can still get it. You just have to buy the additional power brick. They'll do it and prompt solve. And again, I understand it's a business, but I think they could have just 
improved on it a bit by providing more things that were standardized. And I mean, I don't know in terms of the seven core GPU versus the eight core GPU, if there's a tremendous difference, because then you could also make the argument, well, why do you even need to charge more for an eight core GPU if the seven and eight core work exactly the same? My guess is the eight core GPU has some improved functionality over the seven core, but again, why not just make it eight core across the board? Well, I think people like to see options, right? If you just put one thing out there, they'll feel limited. This is the only thing I can get, and this is the price point, and that's right. it. Giving them options, one that's a slightly lower build versus a higher build, they'll say, oh, okay, well, if this is the price difference, I'll just get the, the higher build with everything anyway. Why would I get that one? Right. But if you only have that one option, in your mind, you'll say, well, this is pretty expensive for this. But when they put it out there and they give you this lower end build and say, here's the price for that, but you, you'll just get this. Mentally, you're like, okay, actually, it makes more sense that I get the more expensive one because it's more robust and I can do all this stuff with it and it has more ports and everything else like that versus this other one. So I feel right. it's a mental thing so that people don't feel restricted. If I just told you, hey, you have this one option for a Mac, for a desktop, that's it. What would people think? They'll say, oh, I don't know. Do I even want this? Because this is, this is crazy. But when you right. start branching out options for people, it just gets their mind working because now you've not limited them. You're giving them the options out there. And I think one thing we learn about people in general is they like options, right? They don't like to be told you can only have this one thing. They're not going to like that. When you give them options, they'll say, oh, okay, well, I have that freedom to pick what I want. I'm going to pick the more expensive one because it has everything I want. Well, you know what? They just made you pick that one option by giving you options. Yeah, I mean, when you look at M1, I think the other thing about it is outside of the 7-core versus 8-core GPU, if you go 8-core to 8-core across the board, so if you look at the M1 with just the 8-core CPU, 8-core GPU, and 16-core neural engine, and you look at the MacBook Air versus MacBook Pro versus the iMac, it's all the same chip as far as we know. It's not like one chip is faster than the other. It's the same exact M1 chip. And that kind of jumps into what we'll get to shortly, which is the fact that they brought M1 to the iPad Pro as well. But this is all the same chip until someone says differently that, no, this M1 is different than that M1, or this is a slightly improved M1. As far as I know, it's the same exact M1 chip. So performance should be technically identical between the MacBook Air, MacBook Pro, and the iMac. It's just a matter of form factor and what else is in there. So, for example, if you look at a MacBook Air versus a MacBook Pro, the reason you go Pro is brighter screen. You go from 400 nits to 500 nits. Resolution is exactly the same. The speakers, I think, on the MacBook Pro are better than the MacBook Air. But generally, your CPU and GPU and neural engines are exactly identical. So there's nothing that's going to be different. So performance-wise, in theory, it should be the same. Should be. And that's the other thing. Most of the reviews I've seen will normally be comparing base-level units. So they'll have the 7-core GPU MacBook Air versus the 8-core GPU MacBook Pro and do head-to-head. -head. And the problem is that's not apples-to-apples. Apples. What I would like to see is, okay, is it really the case where it's the same M1 chip so that if you run it in all these devices, general performance-wise would be exactly identical in all those devices? Well, you know, same chip, but all the other hardware is a bit different, right? And it's how does that chip interact with the different hardware? 
Right. I mean, I think the only other thing I would question is whether or not the solid state storage in all the devices are the same. I mean, I would think that maybe in the iMacs that the solid state storage might be faster than the storage that they use in the MacBook Air and MacBook Pro because it's four months out now. And so technology may have changed. I don't recall if they mentioned anything about whether or not there was a change. And normally when they compare, they compare apples to apples. So they would compare the M1 iMac to the previous generation. So they're not going to compare it to the storage that's in the MacBook Pro or the MacBook Air. But I would be curious to see whether or not they're using the same solid-state storage in those devices. Right. You'd have to know if it's the exact same hardware. Right. But, I mean, from just generally looking at MacBook Air to MacBook Pro, it looks like the M1, if you get the 8-core CPU, 8-core GPU, 16-core neural engine, that those are the same exact chip. And so functionally, if the solid state's the same, the rendering time and performance should be the same. But like I said, all the videos that I've watched where people do a comparison between the two using like Final Cut, for example, they'll use the MacBook Air with a 7-core GPU versus a MacBook Pro with an 8-core GPU. And so, yes, you're going to have slight differences in the rendering time. But it's merely seconds. It's not even minutes or hours. It's seconds, like 10, 15-second difference. So it's not a huge difference. So when you look at those two, you would be saying, well, the MacBook Air is a little less expensive. Why don't you just go that route? I mean, I think the bigger question will become right now with the 24-inch iMac, that's the only iMac generation that has M1. I mean, I guess what you could compare it to is, again, something like the Mac Mini. But again, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison because the Mac Mini, you have to buy a monitor. You have to buy a keyboard. You have to buy a mouse to go along with it. The iMac is all-in-one. You have everything there that you need. You really, just out of the box, can start working. Whereas the Mac Mini, if you didn't order a keyboard or a mouse and you don't have one and you don't have a monitor, you're not going to be using it anytime soon. And it looks really cool. Yeah, I mean, they, they look, definitely, they look really stunning. Very sleek. They look it's really it's almost like I, I would want to buy one just to have it just sit there. So here's my question to you. Of these seven colors that they have, which one would you want to have sitting on your table? I'd say, well, I'd say there's two that stand out to me. All right, so, so let, me, let me just read off what the colors are. You have the blue, you have green, you have pink, you have silver, you have yellow, you have orange, and you have purple. And the caveat here is that if you're getting the 8-core GPU, that's the one where you're going to be able to get in the three extra colors because four of the colors are standard across all the devices. So blue, green, pink, and silver are standard between the 7-core GPU and the 8-core GPU models, but yellow, orange, and purple are only available on the 8-core GPU. So what stands out to you? So the blue one stands out to me. That, that okay. I'd say that's number one. But my issue is that you know on the back of it, it's like a darker right. shade, and right. on the front of it, it's a lighter shade. I right. would love it if it was just the same shade. Like I like that darker shade of blue. Right. So I prefer it to be both on the front and the back, right. which would be nice. So that would be my yeah. top choice, the blue one. Right. The second one, which I actually thought was red because I was looking at the back of it, right? But it's the pink one. The pink, again, right. I'm not a fan of the, the lighter shade in the front. I'm a fan of the darker shade on the back of it. Right. So if it was fully one color, one shade, it would be awesome. Right. 
The other thing I'm wondering is whether or not there's a glossy finish to it or if it's a matte finish. It was hard to tell from the pictures because in the pictures, it looks like it's just a flat color. Whereas even like when you had the white IMAX, the white IMAX, even though they look flat, there was a light gloss to it. So I'm curious as to whether or not these IMAX have a, the color section have a gloss to it or if it's more of a, like a matte, a flat finish to it. Well, I'd imagine it would mimic the way they do it on the iPhone. Right. Well, the iPhones have a gloss to it because it's, there's a right. glossy coating I believe coating on the back there's a slight gloss to the, it. So I think the right. back is going to have the gloss. The front is going to have the matte finish. Yeah, it was, at least hard, that's like I said, it was hard. It was really hard to tell from looking at the pictures and any of the video because you don't see any sort of shine on it. And I don't know if that's intentional in terms of how they were, were filming it and presenting it. But it just kind of looked like a very flat color, like a flat paint versus having a semi-gloss or a glossy look. And, of course, what's interesting is that they threw in that purple, which we kind of jumped over, which is they had also announced that there was going to be a new iPhone, not really a new iPhone, but joining the existing iPhone 12 and 12 mini line, a new purple iPhone. So the specs are exactly the same in terms of what's in the iPhone 12 and the 12 mini. It's just that it now comes in purple, which is... I mean, overall, it's a nice, elegant color. I will clearly admit that because I think it looks really nice. I am disappointed that it's only on the 12 and the 12 mini and that they didn't extend that all the way to the Pro line. So the Pro line stays with the exact same colors that that they had. The four colors, silver, graphite, gold, Pacific blue. But now with the 12 line and the 12 mini line, you now have the added colors well, the added color purple, but it's black, white, product red, green, blue, and the new purple. And the purple finish does look very nice. In fact, just, I think, kind of that glossy look and the shine to it stands out more than any of the other colors, than the black, the white, the product red, green, or blue. I think that purple really is a very nice accented color to join the line. And it really yeah, it's a really nice shade. Out. Yeah, I do really yeah. like it. I, th- I think the thing about most phones is we have them like, you know, like for me, you I have, have a case, case on them on anyway. It. So you really, you know, outside of like this little circle on the back of my case where you could see the, the Apple yep. logo, that's yep. it. You can't see the phone. So you don't even know what color phone it's going to be. be. Because we're afraid to break them. That's why. So we have to put it on there. I mean, you could always get a clear case, but yeah, you every time I've gotten a clear case, you always see the scratches right. show up on them. No matter what they say, they say non-scratches and that moment you put them on tables, a week later, you start seeing the scratches on there. And then it just takes away from the look of a clear case because now you just see scratches. So it is unfortunate. We do look at these devices and say, oh, hey, I want this color. It's so elegant, this and that. And the moment we get it, we just throw a case on it and that's it. You don't see it anymore. Exactly. Because what you want to do is you want to protect the phone because you do know even with the ceramic shield now, these are still very easy. You know, if you drop it without a case, you're going to crack it. And it's going to be expensive to replace, even if you have AppleCare. It's not like it's free replacement if you drop it and, and the glass cracks. You still have to pay a fee for it. So that's a big difference then. Okay, you accidentally drop it, so they're just going to replace it. And it's not going to cost you anything. You're still going to have to pay money for it. Yeah, I mean, granted, with uh, the newer phones, they don't feel as slippery. But I still feel that they don't stick to your hand as nicely as having the case and you just feel safer holding it in your hand versus without a case. 
And right. There are sometimes when I've been cleaning my phone, you know, you, you take it out of the case and you feel you're like, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. You know, obviously the, the case will add more thickness to the phone right, in it'll general. Add some bulk to it. So whenever I take it off, I'm like, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. But I'm not going to keep it off because I know the moment I take off that case and I step outside my door, I'm going to trip on something. It's going to go flying. Gonna yeah, it's going to go it's going to fly on the floor and do whatever. Exactly. So unfortunately, you do have to do that. But once in a while, when I do take off the case to clean, the phone itself, I do leave the case off and only at home, this is, right? And right. Probably on the couch. So if I drop it, it'll only bounce off the couch and not hit the floor. But you do forget how elegant and nice the phone is on its own because we throw the case on there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, was it the iPhone 10 that came in that black shade? Because I think this one, the iPhone 12 did not come in... The 12 Pro and Pro Max did not come in the black. It was the silver, graphite, gold, and Pacific blue. So I have the graphite. Mm -hmm. But I think it was the iPhone 10, I want to say, that came in that matte black that had like a very rich right. but shiny black to it, which looked really nice. And that was kind of like the enticing piece of getting it. I mean, look, the Pro and Pro Max coming in the other colors looked fine. But I think it was just the graphite that popped out. Now, if they had, at the time, come out with the purple, then I would say, hmm, would I want to kind of play around with some of the other colors and do something like that? But I think in terms of looking at what the Pro Max came with, the graphite was the one that stood out. It's a, kind of like looking at when you get a MacBook Pro or a MacBook Air, if you have the color options, you're going to start thinking, well, do I want one of these other colors? When you look at the MacBook Air now, they have gold, silver, space gray. Rose gold, when that came out, was so popular. You know, when you had the option of rose gold. So I remember, like, if you had something like, I think, the 12-inch MacBooks when they were available, they were out in silver gray and, I think, rose gold. And that was very popular. Now the gold, I mean, the gold is nice, but it's not the same as the, the rose gold. So there's right. a certain element to it that makes it pop out. I mean, I would stick to still probably space gray just to be consistent. But... If you wanted to have something different, sure, you go to something like the gold instead. When you look at the MacBook Pro, I think that's limited to just two colors, silver and space gray. So it's very flat in terms of what your options are. You're not going to get a lot to choose from. That's why when I got the fourth gen iPad Air and you had this abundance of really nice colors, you had silver and space gray, which are standardized. And then you had rose gold, green and sky blue. I was debating, okay, I'm not going to do space gray again because everything I've gotten is space gray. So I wanted to get something different. So it was between rose gold, green, and sky blue. So rose gold's been around for a while, and it's like, okay, rose gold, everyone else has. I don't want to do that. So now you have green and sky blue, and sky blue just popped out. So, And here's the, the funny thing. So I'm on that fourth-gen iPad right now with you while we're FaceTiming recording this. But I can't even see the sky blue because the sky blue is on the back of the unit and I can't even see it. I have to take it off the magic keyboard in order to actually see that it's sky blue. You can't tell. But What's the one on the thing, front? What color it's the, the black, it's the black it bezel. Black. So they, okay. yeah, they finally did away because I think years of people complaining of why do you even have this white bezel in the front? Just make it black. And it so I think they finally did right. that. Yeah. Well, because unless you got. I think space gray, with the exception of space gray, which offered the black bezel, every other color that you got had a white bezel. Right. And it just made no just sense. didn't match. Yep. Right. And you didn't have the option to customize it. So you could get whatever back you want, but the front was always 
everything is white bezel unless you get space gray. And so that's the reason I would always just get space gray yeah. because and the funny it thing to bezel. that though, and you knew how many people hated that because they would buy like the the stickers, right, and put it on on the front to cover that white bezel because they wanted yeah. a different color or they wanted something else on there because they didn't want that white bezel because right. they bought for a reason the other colors, but you still get a white bezel, which, which exactly definitely bothered me. I never really liked the white bezel, so let's. Jump forward now to iPad Pro because we did mention now that one of the big jumps is going from the AX Bionic chips to now moving M1 over to iPad Pro, which is a huge leap for Apple to do. Because, I mean, there's a certain logic to it. I don't know necessarily that they will phase out the AX Bionic chip and the X representing whatever number that they go up every year. So, like on the iPhone 12 Pro Max and Pro, I believe it's the A14 Bionic chips. Instead of going A14 or A14X Bionic, they decided to put M1 in there. And the logic, I guess, that comes to that is maybe at some point, a lot of these devices are going to go with the M-class Apple Silicon chips. So I'll call it, instead of just like you know M1, 2, 3, 4, whatever the numbers is, MX configuration with that series. And I think now you finally get to the point where with like the A12, A13, A14 chips, each of those lines, they never really told you, well, you know, how fast does this processor perform? How much RAM is on it, this and that. I mean, even M1, they technically don't tell you how fast. I think I was looking it up and it's like a 3.2 gigahertz processor. But you now have the option of getting the M1 and then go a step further. You know that the Apple M1 chip still has the 8-core CPU, has the 8-core GPU. And here's the funny thing. They do 8-core GPU across the entire iPad Pro line. So there's not, we're going to give you a 7-core GPU and it's going to cost a little bit less money. Here, they're doing Apple M1 chip across both the 11-inch and 12.9-inch iPad Pro series. You're going to get the 8-core CPU. You're going to get the 8-core GPU. It's going to have the 16-core neural engine. But now you can select the RAM. So you have 8 gigs of RAM, which is available on the 128, 256, and 512 gig storage models, or 16 gigs of RAM on the 1 terabyte and 2 terabyte storage models. And I did hear one reviewer who was talking about M1, I think, as it relates to the MacBooks, where based on how efficient the M1 runs, having something like 8 gigs of RAM is almost equivalent to normally having 16 gigs of RAM. I don't know necessarily that that's really true, but if that were true, then you really can do a lot with a device with M1. I just hit the mic. But you could really do a lot with M1. But the reality is I would still, in terms of like MacBook Air, MacBook Pro, iMac, go 16 gigs of RAM. But here on the iPad Pro, you might take a step back because just because the M1's in there, Again, I want to emphasize that the iPads are not really computers. I mean, I have my iPad Air 4th Gen with the Magic Keyboard. I mean, it gives me that functionality more like it's a computer where I have a cursor and I have a touchpad and all that. But like I said in our previous episode, it's not precision in terms of how that cursor moves around. And there's still a lot of things you can't do on it because when you go to websites, for example, a lot of websites will still recognize that you're running a tablet device and it's yep. going to push you to the mobile site versus the right. full site. And yep. so it's not exactly 100% the same. And you can't run all your normal software that you run on your laptops on your iPad. But you're excited for iPad Pro and these M1s. And why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, one, I have an older iPad Pro. And I've been waiting just for the right time to get a brand new one that just up with the times, right? I feel that this new iPad Pro would match perfectly with my new iPhone. 
right? right? So they have the newer cameras now. You can unlock the iPad Pro with Face ID. And then there's actually center stage, right? Center stage was like a big item out of the iPad Pro where it can follow you wherever you are. So if I'm moving around like I tend to do whenever we're having these, it would follow me, which is pretty cool. Right. It is a functionality that's in Microsoft Teams. We've seen that one on computers before, but doesn't translate across different devices. But that's one key item that I liked. The second one is that it looks like a very small version of the iMacs. Right. Right. That it has that That hanging design. design. Right. Exactly. So I really liked that. And the way they actually did that comparison near the end where they show the iMac and then you see right. the, the iPad Pro. It's like, oh, it's a, like a mini version of it. So it was pretty cool to see that. And, you know, it's it's still an iPad, like you said. It's not going to have the full desktop features or, or MacBook features. But overall, I think there's a lot that you can do from an iPad and living out of that iPad. I mean, I think a lot of times I can live off my iPhone where I can do what I need to do from that. There are, yes, some applications that you can't access on there, but those aren't ones that I use day-to-day. Right. Now, are you looking at going 11-inch, or are you sticking to something like a 12.9, the, the full size, so you have the full screen real estate? Yeah. I mean, I do, I do want to get the larger of the two, but then you look at pricing, and it does creep up on you, right? right. So th- there is still a debate there around the sizing, but I would prefer the larger one and have that that screen real estate there, and overall just have that. But it's still up for debate. I still need to look at my options, like going back to what I was saying before, that you want to see options and just putting that out and just seeing, well, what do I get for this pricing and what do I get for that pricing? Right, because the 11-inch starts at $799 and includes the liquid retina display. The 12.9-inch starts at $1099 and it has a liquid retina XDR display, so it's stepping it up. And I think where the benefit comes in is if you pair it with like your MacBook and you use it as an additional monitor, then you're really getting the benefit with the larger screen real estate to be able to use it that way. Whereas if you're using it a smaller display, you're really not going to get that same benefit with the 11-inch. I mean, like for me, going with the 4th Gen iPad Air, what I like about it is it gives me more screen real estate because I I believe it's 10.5 inches versus what it used to be, which I think was 10.2 and it started at 9.7. So it gives you that extra screen real estate. But at the same time, I mean, I think they hinted to the flowing design when the Magic Keyboard first came out and they had the previous generation iPad Pros and the iPads. They had these keyboards ready available. And so when they were presenting the side angle, it literally looked like a new iMac, the way it was designed. So I do like the idea of the floating design. One interesting thing that someone had brought up the other day was talking about how the cameras work on these. When you're using the Magic Keyboard, if you're getting an iPad and you intend to use the Magic Keyboard, the camera is still in the same place that it is when you hold the iPad vertically. So it's at that top center, like you use your phone. The problem is that when you use it with the Magic Keyboard, you have it horizontally. And what you want is you want the camera centered to the horizontal access but it's not it's all the way on the left so when i'm looking at you i want to look at the top of the screen like on a laptop that that's where the camera is the problem is the camera's not there the camera is all the way on the bottom left left. yeah right so if i want to make eye contact with you i have to look at the camera over there but if i want to see you on screen i have to pan over to the right to see you but now i'm not looking at you anymore 
well, I'm looking at you, but I'm not looking directly at you because I have to look into the camera. So that throws things off. I wonder what center stage, though, would that help with the way you're looking at it? The, it's po- what it I mean, really it's follows, possible. right? Is it following the person or could it also follow the eyes? Which it, they don't really get know, into. Yeah, because when you get a professional camera, for example, that has like eye autofocus, it, it tends to track your eyes. So it tracks your face, but also tracks your eyes and where you're looking. Right. And it uses that as the tracking mechanism. So when you use like advanced Sony cameras, for example, like alpha cameras, what it does is it follows the eyes so that it always looks like you're looking into the camera. Because if you're tracking someone's face in general, then you're not going to get that precision of making sure that they're always looking into the camera. So you have to really track the eyes and, and which direction they're going in. But just like for me, if I'm talking to you and I'm looking into the camera, the thing is I'm looking at this small little dot that's all the way on the left Meanwhile, you're reacting on the right side, which doesn't make any sense. So I think they would have to figure out, do they put a dual camera system in so that if you have it with the Magic Keyboard, that the camera will now activate in the horizontal position, and then if not, then it would be back in position. I mean, I don't know that they're going to ever put two cameras, but I mean, I get the logic because if you do want to use the Magic Keyboard, the camera is not quite in the right position. Right, I agree. And you would think that... When you're using an iPad, I feel that that's always the direction that you're using it, right? I've never used it the way it was intended, like a book, right? It's, it's used more like how we're talking about it. But. it re- you know, it depends because I think if I'm using my 12.9-inch iPad Pro, for example, most okay. of the time I'm going to hold it vertically because oh, it's easier okay. to hold, like if you, if you want to hold it in your lap, like at night if you're watching something. Sure. It's easier to hold okay. it this way because holding it landscape is really large because over time, as I said, it's heavy. So right. to hold it up like this for a long period of time, and I, what I'm showing is if you're holding it in a landscape position, for a long period of time is hard to do it. Now, if you're just right. using it like I have right now, I'm using the iPad Pro for my notes. I keep it in the landscape position because I can look at notes very easily. But that's right. also because the smart cover, the way the stand functions, it works in that landscape position. Exactly. So you think about it, well, if you're using it like that, shouldn't the camera be be moved? Right. But again, to your point, right, I'm using a 9.7 device, so I can hold it like that, and that's right. fine. But as you get a larger device, that's probably something I need to think about, right? So you, now you just open my eyes, I'm thinking now, oh, wait, that's right, there is the weight difference. And the way I use my iPad, I might not be able to use it in the same way if I get the larger design. Exactly, because so now you're not going to want to hold it you know, in your hands in that landscape perspective. I mean, if you have it on the table or you have it on a mounting arm, like a bracket to hold it, sure, it's not a problem. But if you're going to hold it in your own hands for a long period of time, like I'm going to watch two hours of a movie, I don't know of too many people who are going to hold it up to their face. Right, yeah. I mean, if if I'm watching something, I'd probably have it on a stand. But more like if I'm doing browsing or something else while I'm watching TV, for example, if I'm sitting on the couch, do I want to hold a... 12.9 inch device in my hand like that. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a big question. It's a big decision. I definitely, the reason I had gotten that first gen 12.9 was for the screen real estate. And I was also moving from a second gen iPad over to that iPad Pro. And there were no, I don't believe the iPad Air was available at that point. Right. right. I right. think when I got it, it was pretty much, you had the Pros, you had the 12.9. I think there was still a 9.7 iPad or equivalent. But 
looking at the options, it just made sense to go that direction. But after using it for a number of years, you get to the point where, you know, if you're using it at night and you're just consuming content with it, having a really big device isn't ideal. You want something that's lighter. I mean, if it was big but light, a lot lighter, it'd be different. Right. If it was like paper-thin light, but it's not paper-thin light, so it's kind of harder to, to use that way. But, I mean, so the 11-inch works well. But, again, you know, the other thing about using the Magic Keyboard, the other reason I say it's not a laptop is if you put it in your lap, it's still top-heavy. Right. The iPad will add weight, and it's going to tend to want to fall backwards. Not necessarily if you have it sitting on the table, but if you put it on your lap, let's say you're sitting on a chair and you put it in your lap, it's top-heavy, so it's going to want to lean backwards. So right. it's not weighted so that it's balanced, whereas a laptop, it's weighted more towards the bottom where your keyboard is, so that's the heavier portion. And then your right. monitor or your display isn't that heavy. So yeah, I mean, now that I, that I look at the weight, it, it, the 12.9 inch, the 12.9 inch one is 1.5 pounds versus right. the 11 inch, which is one pound. So that does make a difference. Yeah, it's going to make some level of difference, and you want to take that into consideration when you're looking at it. But definitely, I think some people have said that the iPad Pro with the M1 is semi-future proof, and to some extent, it's kind of that way because the M1 chip is going to be around for a while. It's not going to immediately get replaced, especially now that you're throwing it into the iMac. It's less likely that M1 will just be phased out. Not to say that there won't be like an M1X, because one of the things they didn't talk about at this April event was MacBook Pro, the 14 or 16-inch that will come in some sort of M1 or M1X processor, and that might come later in the year. They haven't talked about that. The MacBook Air may get a refresh. It might come in a lighter, thinner form factor, and it might get an improved M1 processor. But I think generally speaking, the M1 is going to, this first generation of chip, will be around for a while, and it's going to last a while. I think that, yes, to some extent, you are going to get a little bit more future-proofing with the M1 because it is a big jump performance-wise from going, I think, from your A14 chips over to the M1 chips. And the reviews in terms of like the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro with the M1 have been relatively positive. In some cases, it outperforms even the higher-end Intel chips. I've heard that some people have said with the expensive 16-inch MacBook Pros that they got with the i9s, that the M1s handle better in some rendering and, and some exports. But again, it depends on what applications you're using. If you're using Apple native applications, it's definitely going to perform better. I think like in terms of Adobe software, Photoshop, I think, is primarily the only one. I think there's something else that is native to work with M1. Everything else works in Rosetta 2 or their universal apps. So they'll work between Intel and the M1, but they're still not native to it. Right. And the support for 5G also does add to it as well. Like you said, future-proofing it because right. everything is going to 5G now. So the support for that is much nicer. Exactly. So I think... Oh, it is like a big I iPhone. <laughs> right. It's like a big iPhone. Who knows? The iPhones may eventually end up with an M1 chip in order to do right. a lot more. Again, I think Absolutely. it's what the intent is in terms of devices. For the immediate future... I don't think they'll necessarily phase out the A-class chips. It would be interesting if they say, like when iPhone 13 comes out, that they're sticking M1 into the iPhone 13. That will be interesting if they do that. But the guess is it'll probably just be a A15 chip. They're on the A14 now. So that might be what's next in line. 
So talking about M1s, we had said, I think, in the last episode or in a recent episode that one of the things about the M1s was the inability to work with virtualization. And so Parallels announced Parallels Desktop 16.5 that now supports M1. And where I think you run into a problem still is that, well, Microsoft hasn't actually released a Windows 10 for ARM version. It's only Insider build right now. So even if you want to do that, you have to sign up for the Windows Insider program and you can get a preview version. But I think gradually it gets better. The move to Apple Silicon, we're already seeing improvements in performance, improvements in power efficiency, just general improvements overall. And I want to get kind of your thoughts in terms of, you know, even though you don't have an M1 now, what your thoughts will be in terms of what you look forward to the day that you do end up moving to something that has Apple Silicon chip in it, whether it's M1 or it's going to be M2, M3, M4. Yeah, I mean, definitely the virtualization is a key bit, right? This was going back on the earlier episodes where I said I you know, moved from a Windows device to a Mac device. But what's good about being on the Mac is that I could virtualize Windows, right? right? It's the best of both worlds in a sense where I could be on that Mac device, but still do what I need to do on a Windows device. So it, it is a key factor in terms of what I would need on a machine. So if I were to move to the M1, M2, whatever it is at the time when the MacBook I have now goes bad, I would need to make sure that it has full support for virtualizing Windows, whatever version it is going to be at that time, right? as well as the applications that, that I use on there. So it's going to be very key to see where they go with it. But I'm sure all the, the companies are working very hard to get proper support for M1. And I think for myself, I'm probably two years away from getting a new device. So that gives a lot of time for that development to actually happen. Right, because you would come in after Apple's completed their two-year migration to Apple Silicon. So you'd probably be in year three at that point and right. hopefully have kind of the second or third generation of these Apple Silicon chips. Right, exactly. All right, so in terms of all the products that were talked about during the Apple event, which are your top products? Yeah, so I'd definitely say the iPad Pro and AirTags will be just interesting to see how that, that works out. Those would be my top two there. The kickoff with just the Apple Card, that was just something that I was just passively listening to, right. not necessarily caring to pay attention to. I think that's really it. But again, each item was pretty interesting in terms of what they're coming out with. Right. The Apple TV kind of pissed me off because last year I bought one. Right. Thinking, ah, they still haven't released one yet. It's probably going to be another year before it comes out. And you know what? It, it came out. So that one kind of pissed me off a little bit. But you know what? It's okay. Right. Not a big deal. I like what I have today, and it's fine. And I think the only issue is really that remote that, that irks me. But again, I just, I just default back to my iPhone to do a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, I do the same thing. I prefer just using the iPhone to act as a remote and I mean, I still have, I think, a, a third-gen Apple TV or fourth-gen Apple TV. It's, it's old. So half the, the apps don't work anymore because they can't be updated. And what I have it connected to right now is I have it connected to a VGA monitor with a special adapter that converts HDMI and passes audio. So it's not really being used in an ideal environment. 
So I'm not really worried about it. I mean, I think if you have a smart TV, a large TV, then it makes a little bit more sense to take advantage of that once you have the HD capability. And what stood out for you? What stood out for me is I think definitely the iPad Pros and the iMacs were the major standouts because bringing M1 over to them and watching M1 grow and start to really find its, its way into each of the Apple products is really interesting to see. And also knowing and hearing about the performance and the level of performance and the way it performs is a positive because it just tells you that they have the confidence in this chip, even in this first-gen M1, to introduce it across the product line. It's not like we made a slightly improved version of the M1 and that's going to be in the IMAX. No, we're using the same M1, and now it's in our MacBook Airs. It's now in our MacBook Pros. It's now in our Mac Mini. It's now in the iMac. It's now in the iPad Pros. It shows a lot of confidence in the M1 chip. The purple iPhone definitely stood out, although I'm not getting another iPhone because I already have one. And I think just watching the event, the funniest part of the event was the part where someone is doing a Mission Impossible to steal the M1 chip and put it into an iPad Pro. And he knew that was like a Mission Impossible theme. And then, of course, when the mask comes off, it's Tim Cook. And it's like the funniest thing to watch to see, it was pretty to see funny, that. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was I hilarious. didn't expect to see. Yeah. That last piece, I did not expect to see that he would be the, the person that's masked under there. Yeah. It, it's, so that was, that but, was pretty funny. Yeah, so that was hilarious. And I think one of the things, one of the benefits that they have with doing these virtual events now is that they can pre-record and film these things in advance and then make it better. I will say that I do miss the actual live events where you have Tim Cook and you have other people at Apple coming up on stage and actually interacting more with the crowd and just kind of giving the live presentation versus the pre-recorded items. I mean, there, this pre-recorded virtual event, I think, stood out more than the previous one. I think they added more energy to it. It just felt more vibrant. But I think there's that element of not having the live events that I do miss. And also the fact that because we're still dealing with the pandemic, when these products come out into an Apple store, that you can't just head over to the Apple store and go look at them and test it out because all Apple stores are still following safety protocols and you have to. And so you won't be able to, because I would love to be able to go into the Apple store and check out the new iMacs, check out the new iPad Pros with the M1, take a look at the purple iPhone in hand just to see what it looks like. You don't get that opportunity now because of the situation. Everything is you're kind of looking at reviews, reading comments, looking at feedback, and then you just have to make a decision. I am curious, once you get the iPad Pro and you make a decision on that with M1, how things are going to look, especially if we have an opportunity to use it as the device to FaceTime with, and then really get your uh, full review to see what's good and, and what's not. Yep, absolutely. All right, on that note, thank you for listening to the David and Ross Show podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, and on Verbal. And the one thing that I didn't mention is that we are actually refreshing the cover art for the podcast. So you should be seeing it when this episode goes out. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.